Welcome to Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. Margaret Daniel was neither rich nor famous, but the sparse details of her career provide a valuable window into Charleston life around the turn of the 19th century. Between the American Revolution and her death in 1817, she baked delicious pastries, catered fancy dinners for Charleston's white elite, entertained exclusive business meetings, accumulated real estate, and hosted a school for black children. Her story is not found among the literature concerning local foodways, but the evidence of her long career forms a compelling chapter in our culinary history. The paper trail documenting the life of Margaret Daniel covers a span of approximately three decades, which I suspect is merely the second half of her remarkable life. Considering the fact that she was a non-white businesswoman living and working in a community dominated by the practice of race-based slavery, we are fortunate to have any record of her activities at all. Despite exhaustive searching, however, I have not yet found any data about her parentage, her legal condition, or how or when she came to live in urban Charleston. For the time being, the first half of Margaret's life remains a mystery. Let's begin with the firm facts related to Margaret's identity. Many of the records associated with her career identify her simply as Mrs. Daniel. That is to say, she was married at some point, probably before the American Revolution, and she was likely not born with the surname Daniel. As early as 1796, contemporaries identified her as a widow, though her unidentified husband probably died sometime during the 1780s. She might have been the wife of an obscure shopkeeper named John Daniel, who, in 1778, with his wife Margaret, sold a piece of property on Charleston's King Street to a local baker. In lieu of a signature, this Margaret drew an X, or cross, to signify her assent to the sale. This practice of making one's mark was very common in early South Carolina, especially among less affluent women who might learn to read but not to write. In all subsequent manuscripts concerning the pastry cook named Margaret Daniel, with one notable exception, she made a similar mark in lieu of a signature. Many of the 18th century documents related to Mrs. Daniel identify her as a pastry cook, caterer, and property owner without any mention of her skin color or legal condition. She was free and well-known within her community, so there was no need to draw attention to such divisive details. Racial tensions flared in Charleston at the turn of the 19th century, however, as the local population of free persons of African descent swelled and the city received many hundreds of refugees fleeing a bloody slave revolt in the French island colony of Saint-Domingue. In this increasingly tense context, Margaret's skin color became a matter of public record. During the later years of her life, Margaret identified herself as a black woman and also as a free woman of color, using a common phrase of her time. At the turn of the 19th century, these terms embraced people with a myriad of genetic and geographic backgrounds, however. 
Following the example of 18th century British English, the American racial term black encompassed both people of African ancestry and people from the subcontinent of India. East Indian people, as they were once called, circulated throughout the British Empire before and long after the American Revolution, though their numbers in the North American colonies were rather small. Generally speaking, however, Anglo-American colonials did not enslave black East Indian people and transport them to the Americas in chains. The law and culture of early South Carolina circumscribed the liberty of all non-white citizens in varying degrees, whether they were enslaved or legally free. Margaret Daniel, in spite of such conditions, seems to have enjoyed a comparatively successful career with a clientele that included some of the most affluent and powerful white members of her community. This fact, combined with the lack of any records confirming an enslaved background, suggests that her family roots might have extended back to the subcontinent of India rather than Africa. Her connection to a bona fide East Indian woman in Charleston at the turn of the 19th century, Mary Clodder Vesey, tends to support this hypothesis. More about that topic shortly. The range of Margaret's social flexibility is manifest in a small scrap of paper that might represent the earliest surviving record of her catering career. Among the manuscript collections of the South Carolina Historical Society is a receipt created by, or perhaps on behalf of, the well-connected pastry cook. On the 6th of November, 1779, Margaret Daniel acknowledged receipt of 21 pounds, South Carolina currency, from one Mrs. Mott, perhaps the famous Rebecca Bruton Mott, for the delivery of two dozen cheesecakes and three, or perhaps three dozen, puddings. The entire text of this brief document, including the signature and faulty arithmetic, was written by the same reasonably competent hand using the standard quill and ink of that day. Without further examples of Margaret's handwriting, it's impossible to know if she personally drafted the receipt or relied on the penmanship of an associate or spouse. Regardless of who signed Margaret Daniel's name in the autumn of 1779, the receipt demonstrates that she was an established pastry cook in Charleston by the fourth winter of the American Revolution. The patronage of the affluent Mott family suggests that Margaret enjoyed a sterling reputation, likely built on several years of consistent service, providing bespoke confections in the quantities required for genteel social gatherings within the city's finest venues. The nature of this service and the fruits of her kitchen are, in fact, reminiscent of another female pastry cook who preceded Mrs. Daniel. Margaret Nelson, occasionally spelled Nielsen, pastry cook from London, advertised repeatedly in Charleston from the summer of 1768 until her death in 1772, publishing mouth-watering lists of the cakes, puddings, tarts, and pies she baked for customers on demand. Although Mrs. Nelson's brief career in South Carolina produced no lasting records of her background or family, it is possible that she had a daughter named Margaret who followed in her culinary footsteps. 
Like many other free persons of color in early Charleston, Margaret Daniel is known to have owned enslaved people during her long career. In July 1790, for example, she purchased a, quote, mulatto girl slave named Abby, end quote, from Thomas Jones, who was the intendant or mayor of Charleston at that moment. Mr. Jones was not the legal owner of Abby, however, but rather the executor of the estate of Susanna Snelling. In her will, drafted less than a month before the sale in question, Miss Snelling directed her esteemed friend, Thomas Jones, to let her slaves choose new masters, as long as the candidates were willing to pay, quote, their real value to Mr. Jones. Abby must have appealed to Margaret Daniel, a businesswoman with whom Abby might have already had a working relationship. Mrs. Daniel paid 40 pounds sterling for the mulatto girl Abby, who might have adopted the surname Jones. A few years later, after gaining her own freedom, this Abby might very well have been Abigail Jones, the pastry-baking wife of the mulatto tailor named Jehu Jones. Some weeks after Abby joined the Daniel household in Charleston, at an unknown location, agents of the United States government went door-to-door to gather names and statistics for the first federal census. The census enumerator for the parishes of St. Philip and St. Michael, that is, urban Charleston, identified, quote, free Mrs. Daniel, end quote, as the head of a household that included four free non-white citizens and one enslaved person. While we can confidently identify the latter as Abby, the identity of Margaret's three free housemates is unknown. They might have been her children, but nothing definite is known about her immediate family. The location of Mrs. Daniel's residence in 1790 is unknown, and she might not have owned a kitchen of her own in the aftermath of the American Revolution and her husband's death. In December of that year, however, we catch a glimpse of her working environment in a brief newspaper notice. To celebrate their corporate anniversary, an elite militia unit called the Charleston Battalion of Artillery summoned its members to gather on December 14th at Mr. Turner's Long Room, late the City Tavern, that is, at the northeast corner of Broad and Church Streets, where they enjoyed a festive dinner provided by Mrs. Daniel. Margaret Daniel began to create her own working venue in the spring of 1792. That April, she purchased what was apparently a vacant lot on the east side of Church Street, a few yards north of Stoll's Alley. The seller, James Verret, had moved to New Jersey and left a local house builder, Joseph Dill, in charge of selling his property. The lot in question, now called number 56 Church Street, measured a little more than 29 feet wide and 182 feet deep, surrounded by a number of older but respectable wooden residences owned by white slaveholding Charlestonians. Margaret immediately mortgaged the property back to Mr. Verret in exchange for a loan of the purchase price of 200 pounds sterling. Standing in the background of these proceedings as a witness was one Stephen Seymour, harbor master of Charleston, whose presence merits mention. 
Although he is largely forgotten today, Captain Seymour was likely the father of a mulatto girl he called Sally Martin, to whom he left his modest estate. Sally was manumitted by Thomas Martin in 1795 and, like Abby Jones, was probably a protege of Margaret Daniel during the 1790s. During the early years of the 19th century, she enjoyed a successful career of her own as the celebrated pastry cook Sally Seymour. Margaret Daniel, perhaps with the assistance of Joseph Dill, was responsible for the construction of a modest residence and workspace on her lot, described a few years later as, quote, a neat two-story house on the front containing six rooms with a piazza neatly enclosed by Venetian blinds and a balcony, two complete kitchens with large ovens, and a wash house and necessary outbuildings, end quote. After satisfying the mortgage on the house, lot, and kitchens in 1796, she paid for the construction of a two-story rectangular structure behind the main house that included an upstairs long room or multi-purpose entertainment space. During daylight hours, black children allegedly gathered here to learn reading, writing, and arithmetic, while adults, black and white, assembled at night to dance and partake of Mrs. Daniel's well-known culinary talents. Margaret did not advertise or brag about such activities, but her more conservative neighbors complained to the local authorities. In April 1798, Mrs. Daniel invited the public to visit her new ballroom to view a curious art installation. The exhibit, for which Margaret charged admission, included, quote, about 1,000 likenesses, octavo size, of the most distinguished characters the world had produced, men and women known by their talents, virtues, and crimes, made by Mr. Bonneville, the artist in Paris, end quote. This colorful collection, said the proprietor, included, quote, the principal actors of the French Revolution, also the elegant engravings of the different events of the Revolution, together with an optical machine containing several interesting subjects, too tedious to mention in an advertisement, end quote. Several days after the opening of this historical gallery, an anonymous citizen published a complaint in the local newspaper alerting city officials to alleged illegal activities taking place at Mrs. Daniel's new venue. The author, who called himself a friend to morality, did not identify Margaret by name, but she was clearly the target of his complaint. Quote, Contrary to the city ordinances, there is a house of entertainment kept by a woman of color in Church Street who has a long room and keeps a school for black children and frequent dances at said house composed of a mixture of inhabitants and the offenders of the laws pass unnoticed, end quote. Despite the serious nature of the allegations leveled by this friend to morality, city authorities had little cause to complain about the business practices of Margaret Daniel. The local constabulary might have asked her to minimize the nocturnal disturbances, but they did not put a stop to her business. On the contrary, the city's most respectable white men seemed to have embraced Margaret's house of entertainment at the turn of the 19th century. 
Between 1799 and 1802, if not earlier, the members of several local men's clubs held quarterly business meetings and festive annual dinners at Mrs. Daniel's Long Room in Church Street. These repeat visitors included the Society of the Cincinnati, the St. Cecilia Society, the American Revolution Society, the St. George's Society, and the Junior St. Andrew's Society. This very public patronage of a business owned by a black woman testified to the strength of her local reputation and was undoubtedly founded on many years of experience with Margaret's cooking and hospitality. Affluent white men did not monopolize Margaret's floor space, however. In October 1801, Charleston City Gazette published an advertisement for a remarkable phenomenon of that time, a school for people of color, held at Mrs. Daniels in Church Street. Classes in English grammar, writing, and arithmetic were scheduled to begin on the first Monday in November. In addition, read the advertisement, quote, a gentleman of known abilities will attend there daily for other additional branches of education, end quote. Interested parties were directed to apply to Mrs. Daniels' well-known venue for further information, but the fate of the school is unknown. The advertisement appeared only three times in just one week. Either the subscription list was quickly filled by eager students, or local authorities discouraged further advertisement of what many white citizens considered to be a dangerous pursuit. To augment her income, Mrs. Daniel also hired rooms to boarders, like a short-term rental facility within the heart of a residential neighborhood. Margaret never advertised this facet of her business portfolio, but the 1802 edition of the Charleston City Directory identified Mrs. Daniel of Church Street as both a pastry cook and the proprietor of a boarding house. The identity and skin color of her customers is unknown, but we might imagine that it served as a sort of model for the prestigious Jones Hotel, opened by Abigail and Jehu Jones on Broad Street in 1816, which catered to wealthy white visitors. In late March 1802, Mrs. Daniels' long room hosted another remarkable phenomenon, the estate sale of an enigmatic woman named Mary Claudner Vesey. Mrs. Vesey, the former owner of Denmark Vesey and common-law wife of Captain Joseph Vesey, had died earlier the same year at her commodious home on the Charleston Neck, known as The Grove, which she had purchased for a large sum of money in 1796. The deed identified the purchaser as, quote, Mary Claudner, commonly called Mary Vesey, a free East Indian, now residing in the city of Charleston, end quote. Whether or not Margaret Daniel had any sort of relationship with Mary is presently unknown, but the disposal of Mrs. Vesey's effects suggests a connection between the two women. The estate sale was initially advertised to take place at Vesey's Grove, now called Lowndes Grove, nearly three miles north of Charleston's urban boundary, but was later changed to Mrs. Daniel's Long Room in Church Street, in the heart of the city. 
There, on March 29, 1802, a vendue master called for cash bids on a large assortment of household and kitchen furniture, silver plate, plantation tools, farm animals, and seven enslaved people of African descent. Mary Claudner Vesey had enjoyed some wealth in her later years, around the turn of the 19th century, but Margaret Daniel was not quite so fortunate. In fact, she was experiencing a financial crisis during the spring of 1802. Two years earlier, one of her suppliers, a Charleston factor named James Carson, had filed suit to recover a small debt remaining from a large supply of bacon and other comestibles that Margaret had purchased in 1799. Her attorney, Thomas Hines, defended Mrs. Daniel's reputation in the local court of common pleas, but a jury in 1801 rendered a verdict in favor of Mr. Carson. The judge then ordered the district sheriff to levy the sum of $245.25 on the property of Margaret Daniel if she did not pay the plaintiff in a timely manner. The court's patience was wearing thin in early 1802, forcing Margaret to consider her future. In April of that year, one month after the sale of Mary Vesey's estate, Mrs. Daniel sold all of her Church Street property to a local grocer named Duncan Love for £1,000 sterling. She apparently remained in place for some months longer until she secured a new place of residence and business. In late August 1802, Margaret Daniel purchased another parcel of downtown real estate, a rectangular lot at the northeast corner of Archdale and Bearford Street, now called Fulton Street, measuring approximately 28 feet wide and 119 feet deep. Using the remaining profit from the sale of her Church Street property, she purchased or built another modest wooden residence and large kitchen to continue her culinary trade. Her work was apparently in decline, however, due to reasons unknown. Perhaps she was simply growing weary from the constant labor of catering to the demands of her increasingly conservative white clientele. It's worth noting that none of the affluent clubs and societies that had once patronized her long room in Church Street followed her across town to Bearford Street. To economize further, in 1805, she divided her rectangular strip of land on the north side of Bearford Street into two unequal parcels and sold the smaller eastern portion to a wealthy white planter named Thomas Pinckney. As I described in episode number 228, Mr. Pinckney conveyed a house on this lot in 1807 to his young mulatto mistress named Eliza Pinckney and their mixed-race children. The Charleston city directories of 1806 and 1807 still identify Margaret as a pastry cook, working and residing at the northeast corner of Archdale and Bearford Streets, but her career was nearly over. At the end of 1806, Mrs. Daniel again subdivided this property. To one Sarah Cooper, she sold the eastern portion of her remaining property, measuring approximately 30 feet square, and retained for herself a modest rectangular lot at the corner of Archdale Street. In the spring of 1808, Margaret advertised that she was ready for a change of scenery and was perhaps stepping away from her long cooking career. That April, 
the Charleston Courier printed a small notice that, quote, a free woman of color of good character and disposition would be glad to engage to go to the northward with a family during the summer months, end quote. Interested parties were directed to inquire at Margaret Daniels' house at the corner of Bearford and Archdale Streets. Whether or not she accompanied a white family to the northern states for the summer of 1808 is unknown, as are her movements over the next several years. Her name disappeared from subsequent editions of the Charleston City Directory, and she seems to have retired from commercial life in the Palmetto City. In June 1811, Margaret Daniels summoned to her assistance a man in whom she apparently placed great trust. Jehu Jones, a mulatto tailor who had purchased his own freedom in 1798, might have been like a foster son to the elder woman. As I mentioned earlier, it's possible that Mrs. Daniel nurtured the early careers of Jones and his wife Abigail. With Jehu's consent, Margaret assigned her power of attorney to him in a formal document recorded before two white witnesses. Describing herself as a free woman of the city of Charleston, she empowered Jones to collect money due to her and to settle her debts, quote, as I might or could do if I was personally present, end quote. At some point after empowering Jehu Jones to act on her behalf, Mrs. Daniel left her modest residence in urban Charleston and retired to a more bucolic setting in the rural parish of St. James Goose Creek. For reasons unknown and through circumstances unrecorded, Margaret apparently settled on or near a plantation owned by a white widow named Mary Mazique. Her property, called Liberty Hall by a later generation, included a small community of enslaved people of African descent like every other plantation in the low country of South Carolina. Whether or not Mrs. Daniel knew some of these people earlier in her life, or if Mrs. Mazik had perhaps invited the elderly confectioner to her plantation, is unknown. In either case, Margaret settled in and received some manner of comfort and care during her final days. On the 23rd of December, 1816, Margaret Daniel placed her familiar cross mark on one final document, her last will and testament. She identified herself as a black woman of Charleston who was residing in the parish of St. James Goose Creek. After recommending her soul to the hands of my blessed Redeemer, she turned to the disposal of her worldly possessions. To administer her estate after her death, she nominated two men she described as my friends, James Martin and Jehu Jones of Charleston. She directed them to deliver, quote, to my friend Mary Ann, a black woman belonging to Mrs. Mary Mazique of Goose Creek, a full, entire suit of mourning as a token of my friendship and gratitude to her for her past services and attention to me, end quote. To Sarah Pensiel, eldest daughter of Charles and Margaret Pensiel, that is, perhaps Margaret's granddaughter and daughter, she said, I give and bequeath my wearing apparel, bed and bedclothes. 
More generally, however, to the children of Margaret Pensiel, which are now living and which she may have hereafter, Mrs. Daniel bequeathed the lot with my buildings thereon at the corner of Bearford and Archdale Streets, with the rest and residue of my property that I shall leave to be equally divided among them. The death of Margaret Daniel is not recorded in any known document, and it's doubtful her grave is still marked in any way within the modern landscape of Goose Creek. Her will was filed in Charleston on the 9th of October, 1817, which might have been some weeks or perhaps months after her demise. Memory of her culinary career soon faded among the gourmands of Charleston, as other pastry cooks like Abigail Jones, Sally Seymour, Antoinette Valentine, and others rose to prominence and brought new dishes to perfection in the Palmetto City. In a city and region that celebrates its diverse culinary heritage, Margaret Daniel merits mention as an important link between the British colonial traditions of the 18th century and the Americanization of local foodways in the early 19th century. We presently have an imperfect understanding of her origins and identity, but the extant evidence of her career in Charleston places her at the top of the food chain, so to speak, during an important era in the community's history. When we gather in future to discuss the legacy of forgotten black cooks and entrepreneurs, please remember to set a place for Margaret Daniel. Charleston County Public Library is your home for local history. To explore our resources and programs, and to read an illustrated transcript of this podcast, point your web browser to ccpl.org. Thanks for listening to the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.